Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast, where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm, and I am joined this week by Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors. Danny, how are you? I'm doing really well, Alex. How are you doing? I think you're my third favorite of three managing editors. All right. Uh, also, we have Natasha Mascarenas, one of TC's early stage and venture capital reporters. Tosh, how are you? I'm now trying to figure out who the managing editors are <laughs> I just, <laughs> and do the math there, in my There head. might only be that, two. That just goes to show you how good of a managing job that we do, that yes. the people we're supposedly managing have no idea who we are. I love my editors. <laughs> I'm doing well, Alex. <laughs> my favorite title will always be editor at large. Um, right. Now, we're going to go from being whimsical and relaxed to being to being serious for a minute. Today is June 19th also known as Juneteenth here in the United States. If you're not if you're not in the States, you might not be familiar with this day and kind of the significance. So this is a great chance to go get on Google and, and take a book around and learn about what this day is and why it matters. But it's kind of a, it's, it's a solemn day of, of celebration, I think, in America, marking the end of slavery a long time ago, but still an important thing to keep in mind. So that's today. Uh, a lot of tech companies are off. If you want to read about what the tech industry is doing about Juneteenth, TechCrunch's Megan Rose Dickey wrote a great piece entitled Tech Companies Just Found Out About Juneteenth. And this is what they're doing. It's a good, good piece. It's worth your time. Go ahead and take a look at it. And kind of sticking with uh, more serious announcements, uh, Danny Crichton and company have put together something that's very interesting that we hope is going to make the world of venture capital a little bit more democratized. Danny, if you could talk us through the TechCrunch list, that'd be lovely. Absolutely. I think, you know, obviously the events over the last couple of weeks have shown that you know, the tech industry just lacks a lot of avenues for access. You know, there's a lot of inside information that people have that's not democratized. It doesn't level the playing field for a lot of other folks. And so here at TechCrunch, we're starting a new initiative called the TechCrunch List. And the idea is to collect a database of investors based on the first checks they wrote into startups. And our hope is to find founders who was willing to bet on them first, who was willing to write that first check, who was willing to help catalyze around to get going. Because I think for a lot of our listeners, a lot of TechCrunch readers, you know, the biggest challenge of building a company is finding that first person who's willing to say, I believe in you and I've already wired the money. And so if you are a founder who's had a, a, the benefit of a first check, if you want to uh, endorse someone as saying, hey, this person really reached out and moved forward, we'd love to hear from you. Go to techcrunch.com, submit your information to us, and we're all putting it together for the next couple of weeks. Cool. And by first check, just to be super clear, it means people are actually willing to be a lead, who's willing to take that jump. A lead and who wrote the check first. And, and sometimes it's the angels, right? Sometimes it is someone who has a smaller check. Sometimes it's someone who has a huge check. What's beautiful about this uh, approach is I, I think regardless of the size of your checkbook, everyone has the ability to be first in committing behind a founder. And that's what we really want to find. All right. Now, going from the, the very serious to the important, and now we're going to the whimsical. Sorry for this. And the trivial. Uh, but equity, ladies and gentlemen, is, is finally on Twitter. Three years and several hundred shows, we have solved Chris Gates' our producer's main fantasy and dream in life, which is to have our own Twitter account. <laughs> and so you may go follow it if you'd like. We are at EquityPod on Twitter.com. And we're not going to tweet that much from it. We all have our own personal accounts that we use way too much. But if you want to keep up with the show, what we're doing, maybe guests who are coming up down the road, and we'll be getting back in the studio, all sorts of fun things. But we're there now, so go ahead and say hi. And with that, friends, I think we're going to start. A couple of big stories out this week. Some really interesting stuff about the way the market works. My favorite one of the week actually was about Fortnite, interestingly enough. Everyone knows that Fortnite is owned by Epic. Epic is a, a large company, which we'll get to in a second. Also famous for running the Epic Gaming Store. Danny, you've heard of this. You're familiar with Epic versus Steam and all that, right? Yes. Yeah. See, it's a very common thing. Even Danny, a non-gamer, a man who only plays physical board games, knows about the Epic Store. <laughs> now, the reason why we're talking about this this week is because the news is out in the last day or two that they're going to raise money at a new higher valuation. And... 
Uh, seen numbers 16.3 billion from VentureBeat, seen 17 billion from Bloomberg, but it's, it's in the 16, 17 billion dollar range. So an enormous amount of money for a gaming company up from about a $15 billion valuation back in 2018. So not the biggest delta, you know, between the, the, the two rounds, but certainly an interesting one. And the reason why we're surprised to see this isn't because we hate Fortnite. That's Fortnite's fine, whatever. But more that gaming companies haven't traditionally been the world's best venture capital investment. And Daniel, I was hoping you could tell us why episodic revenue is not conducive to venture capital style returns. Well, episodic revenue is not conducive to venture capital style returns. No, I was just kidding. No, I think one of the biggest issues with games is, is you know, obviously with studios, you're launching a product and there's a shelf life. And there's been some great analyses of some major companies like Supercell, where if you look at the revenues by game, you know, there's inevitably this sort of downward curve. And so what's interesting is, is Epic Games, the owner of Fortnite, has managed to actually keep Fortnite going for an ex extraordinarily long period of time for the gaming industry, mostly by creating new combinations of plays, uh, creating new environments. I believe a couple of weeks ago, we had this large concert that had what was it, several million people kind of live on... 12.3 on... million people. There you 12. go. 12.3 million people, Tosh, are you 12, serious? 12.3 million simultaneous across in, in groups of 100. Um, so it's not all in one room. But what's actually quite interesting to Epic long-term is that they really want to lower the price of games for game developers. And so the Epic Store, I believe, charges a, a fee of about 12% compared to Steam, Apple, the Android Store, where it's 30% of the total cost that you're paying goes to the platform and not the actual developer. And so what's interesting to me is not only were they able to increase the valuation, despite the fact that Fortnite is definitely entering, you know, a longer period of time since its original launch, but that investors are actually comfortable with the idea that you can charge a lower take rate on an mm. online store and it still works out really, really well. You know, using myself as a data point, I did not care about Fortnite, even though I'd heard it so much until the Travis Scott concert happened on the platform. It's kind of this validation of what some investors who have long been bullish on esports have been saying is like it's becoming more mainstream i think fortnite's actually becoming more mainstream finally okay. so when i saw that the, they were raising i was like all right this time i'll pay attention versus every time before i did not care i'm so glad you're on the show because of that perspective difference like to, to me i heard about fortnite when it's battle royale <laughs> format was still like the, the the lesser known version of Fortnite, i was playing it back when it was much smaller and so it's really funny as a gamer you know that's my perspective on the world it's really funny to hear you talk talk about what brought it actually into your orbit uh, i think we can all agree on travis scott so that's probably the, the meeting point for all of our minds two things about this though to bring it back to, to the round uh one is it's a enormously larger company financially than i thought VentureBeat had some numbers about epic games from 2019 and I'll just list a couple of them. But according to VentureBeat's reporting, Epic Games had $4.2 billion in revenue last year and $730 million in EBITDA or earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, uh, shooting for growth this year, revenue of $5 billion, EBITDA of $1 billion. Now, this brings back to the point about gaming companies not being VC loved, because if you're going to do $5 billion in revenue, $17, $18 billion valuation doesn't seem to be very high. But there is probably some built-in downside to if Fortnite goes passe at some point in time in the future. But this is this is interesting. Uh, Tosh, you bring up the point about Fortnite being more than a game. It's more of a platform, if you will, more of a social environment. I, that probably gives it more longevity, in my view, making it a bit more of a sustainable. I think that's a big question, right? Is does it become does it migrate from being a game platform to being a virtual world? 
right? Mm -hmm. where, where experiences like you could imagine the presidential inauguration being hosted on Fortnite. We actually here at TechCrunch considered hosting Disrupt on Fortnite. In fact, we've had multiple we people say we no should way. host all of Disrupt, all of our events on Fortnite going forward as, as we were looking at different virtual reality platforms to host our events. And so I, I think one of the big questions is, you know, can it be both an entertainment platform as well as, you know, kind of the next generation of communications technology? And so, you know, if that's true, I mean, that's a huge bet. That's why I think a lot of VCs are, are getting in on, on this. And what's amazing is it's profitable, right? I mean, how often do we get to see a 20% EBITDA uh, kind of margin company? Well, I think it's really interesting that we're talking about a company that deals with a cut and they're winning by offering a smaller cut of games sold to their store. Uh, while we also this week had an enormous fight all across the Twitter sphere, the Apple blogosphere about Apple's uh, essentially demand that it always gets a 30% cut of stuff that flows to the app store. So, so Tosh, what's going on with Hey, which I think is how you pronounce it. It's Hey, I think not, not like not hey i know i have trust issues with pronunciation <laughs> before we yeah before we get into the apple drama which i have thoughts on i'll just give background on hey Basecamp basically unveiled this 99 a year email service that similar to superhuman which we've talked about had rahul Bohr on extra country live earlier this week they all want to make email easier cleaner simpler to navigate you know, the obvious competitor is like the fact that Gmail is free and good enough for most of us. So I don't care about email that much or email innovation. I do care about the Apple drama. Really quick, Apple is rejecting app updates from, from Hey because it's saying that it's violating its its laws for, for in-app purchases. This is, this is my take. I don't care that this one person who has a lot of Twitter followers who might be completely fine of a human is, is is tweeting about it and is getting the Twitterverse mad about it. But I do care if it sets a new precedent for other companies in the Apple sphere that have traditionally had to give Apple 30% of their in-app commission. <laughs> so so uh, let's play Q&A, Danny. Danny, do you think it's fair for Apple to demand that applications that have an, a, a way to purchase them outside of the app that's in the App Store uh, have an option in them to buy the app and the app service inside the app store. Absolutely. I think it's do totally you, fair to include both. So, but you, it's fair for them to, 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 to mandate that, you, you know, even if you can buy it outside that you must include an option to use Apple pay and to use the app stores built in payment app infrastructure. And so you you then seem to be in favor of Apple being able to say, it's our app store. You must have this as a requirement. And therefore you must give us 30% of revenue that flows through those channels that we demand that you have. You know, yes, but it gets complicated, right? Because on at least on the iPhone, you have no alternative, right? There's no way to, I mean, legally add apps in any other way other than through Apple's product. Yes. And, and unfortunately, unlike most other parts of tech where things get more efficient, more profitable at scale, the App Store has always taken 30%. There's never been a change in this price point, right? It, you know, marketing stays the same. Have payment costs really you know, stayed the exact same, despite the fact that it's now running tens of billions of dollars of, you know, GMV per year. I think that's crazy and ridiculous. I think, I think this is what's so interesting about Epic is to say, hey, you know, can you actually create a competitive dynamic in gaming by just lowering the price from 30 to 12? And suddenly a lot yeah. of independent producers can do it. Now, no one can do that to Apple. You're stuck with the App Store. And I think that this really adds a lot of questions around antitrust and Apple's control over its walled garden ecosystem. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I feel like Apple is someone that you can't really argue with. I guess it's happening anyways, but Epic, I'm sure in some ways needed to be competitive. So they wanted to make it lower and easier and more developer friendly. But when you're a company like Apple, a machine like Apple, you don't necessarily need to be developer friendly. And I, 
I I'm surprised that the conversation is 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 reemerging as as much as it has this past week, given like how much else we have to care about. But well, the timing's really fascinating, Tosh, because we all know that the EU announced this week that they're looking into Apple and the App Store and antitrust. And in fact, while we're recording this very episode on a lovely Thursday afternoon, news just broke that Microsoft President Brad Smith just told or just said that the U.S. and the EU antitrust regulators. Uh, quoting Dina Bass from Bloomberg, should be looking at app stores, citing behavior he says is worse than what Windows did when it was found guilty. So in terms of this going from, so this has gone from like, oh, the EU is doing something to, oh, look, DHH is blowing up Twitter and everyone's mad at Apple again to, oh, how many developers are now having their own updates delayed because they won't add this in-app purchase to now Microsoft is like throwing just a can of gasoline onto the bonfire, like let's fucking party. So this is, this has gone from a small thing domestically to a large thing globally is my read now. This is not going to go away by Tuesday. That's right. And I think the other side of this is, you know, Apple seems to want everything to flow through its app store. Um, but like companies like Hey and Basecamp, Netflix traditionally has had a huge issue with this. You couldn't run Spotify for the same reason for many years because of the same issue is that if I buy a subscription on one device that's not an Apple device and I want to run that subscription on my Apple device, you know, who actually takes the fee? And Apple, you know, has been very complicated about saying, hey, you know, just because you bought it on your iPhone, you might use it on 10 other devices that are not Apple devices. You know, why should Apple exclusively get the cut from that store? And so I, I think that there's going to be a break here. Like, I just, you know, you start to see the arguments here around antitrust. There's a little bit, there's also news this week that the digital tax initiative between the U.S. and the European Union collapsed this week due to the U.S. kind of reneging on its kind of commitments and its, its statement of principles. But like, ultimately, this is a huge challenge for payments. I mean, for those who follow our own premium membership service, Extra Crunch, launching in other countries is hard. There's a lot of complexity with payments. There's a lot of complexity with it receiving money in different countries. And Apple does solve that problem, right? I mean, it is. it should be rewarded for making it so easy to accept money in so many currencies in so many countries simultaneously while staying within the law. But I think the fact that the number hasn't changed at all from 30 in, what, 12 years? I mean, clearly something has, ha has to happen and more competition should be there in the market. Yeah. You um, effectively made me care much more about hey than I did at the beginning of this segment. Hey. So, <laughs> hey. <laughs> um, but no, I, yeah, exactly. I think it's the, the precedent is much more important than the email app. And that is something that I'll, I'll keep following. And, and another issue, you know, we didn't talk about, but like, look, in the old days when Apple was essentially selling a single one-off app, right? You would buy an app and then have it permanently. It was great to say, hey, it's a 30 you know, percent of your one-time fee. The big issue here is around subscription, which is Apple is actually taxing forever. Now, it does decline from 30% to 15% in year two. Okay, so that's nice. But like Apple doesn't do anything after the first year. Like they didn't market, they didn't get you attractive, mm. they didn't handle anything. And so why is this not as cheap as like 2.75% like a square transaction at a, at a POS at a coffee shop? It's um, even that's worse, the part dude. to me that blows my mind. It's even worse than that because if you're Spotify, you, you don't depend on Apple's app store placement of your app to drive mind share of your service, right? Apple's right. not giving you free marketing. You're, you're freaking Spotify, you're global. I go to the app store to find your app. I don't go to the app store to find an app and then find Spotify. And right. so they're getting an enormous cut of many different companies' income streams, and it now feels pretty egregious. I think, though, uh, the best take on this that I think is wrong but interesting was Walt Mossberg. He did a thread saying, like, you know, he's kind of like, the, like the, the uncle of tech, I feel like. He's like, well, you know, back in the day. And he said, you know, when Apple launched the App Store and said they were going to take a 30% cut, they got applause because it was much of a lower cut than others had taken historically uh, for distro. 
Uh, and maybe that was true back in like 2008, 2009, but it's 2020. It's a very different world now. And I think Epic leading with this, leading the market with this 12% cut is going to change things. Because why would I accept less? What work are you really doing? And uh, this is <laughs> wrapping. So I think we've got a little bit long on this, but like makes me like Windows more, you know, because on Windows, I can install whatever store I want. You know, I'm not like, I'm not beholden to some kind of like super first party um, handholding on that front. It makes me feel well, happy. I, I think if you look, look, if there, instead of a monopoly store, if there was a duopoly, if there are two stores, would it be 30%? And I no, think be, almost certainly it would 12. not. It would be yeah. at least, you know, 10, 12%, something like that, which means in my view, it's wrong. Yeah. Well, what's going to be really fun to see here is which pile of money will win? <laughs> <laughs> or everyone else's pile of money. The good news is they have plenty of money for lawyers. So oh, they, yeah. lots of money to be made in the antitrust world in the next couple of years. I mean, I believe former social cap uh, VC Chamath yeah. came out this week saying that all of big tech will be broken up in the next decade. So I think this is definitely a story we're going to see again and again and again. Yeah, I'm going to be really curious if we see Amazon split off from AWS, the e-commerce versus the computing business. If we see Google broken up into, well, there's only one part of it that makes any money. So everything else will just kind of die, I suppose, at Alphabet. Apple services and, and hardware, it's kind of a weird, I don't know how that would work, frankly. I, I don't think Chamath is right, but I think he's very good at saying provocative things that are directionally correct. Which is not Sounds so like we should have him as a guest on the show. Yeah. Uh, Chris, if you're <laughs> listening, can we can we pull it off soon? That'd be a great show. Um, <laughs> let's let's move on before we run entirely out of time. Let's do a couple of adventure rounds if we can, guys. Can we start Tosh with Degreed? I'm super curious about this round, and I want to hear all about it. Yes. So Degreed, it's been a minute since we talked about EdTech on here, so I'm excited. Degreed basically is a platform that helps employers upskill their workforce. So real quick, the difference between upskilling and reskilling is upskilling, think of an employee base that is already, you know, skilled at their jobs. Their jobs aren't going anywhere, but they just want to get better at it. And then mm. reskilling is your job became useless overnight, say a robot pretending to be a journalist, and you now need to reskill yourself in a completely different skill set to be useful. So Degree just landed 32 million led by Owl Ventures, a really prominent ed tech firm to to help both employees who are part of companies and who are you know recently laid off be more lucrative and more useful assets in the job market so a question about owl ventures are they named for owls because owls are supposed to be like wise yeah i guess it's, it's education okay. yeah i'll take it i mean most vcs are named like spruce and so it's a completely useless catalyze like, yeah catalyzed a, catalyzing a, a crap a crappy verb a mountain or a large tree I like that one. It's different. How much money have they raised before this? Is this a large amount of capital for Degreed compared to their preceding fundraisers? So, yeah. they So they were founded in 2012. We're joking that I was like, oh my God, you're raising. This feels like it's been a minute. But they've raised $182 million to date. And wow. I think that they, this is a smaller round than previous rounds that they've raised, which the CEO basically said is because it's directed. It's mostly earmarked for a singular product. Versus, and I don't know how real true that is, but that is what they said. I, I think it's interesting because I, I've known the company a long time. I mean, it's it's an eight-year-old company, and it originally started to break basically the transcript. It really wanted to actually fix credentialing in higher education. So it was designed to be sort of a portable skills-based transcript as opposed to kind of the class transcript you get from colleges. And it seems amazing and, and interesting to me in a kind of a common pattern you see in EdTech where you start with the data and it's it's a huge struggle to get people to actually care about the data, at least from what I can tell. And so you see more and more people moving into like, well, let's do upskilling. Let's actually give you the skills that are behind that data. 
And so I think Degreed kind of followed that same path and really kind of figured out its way forward. Do we think that it's a negative sign that they raise a smaller round this time, Danny? No. I mean, again, we don't know the dilution. So I, I always, okay. I'll, I'll stay optimistic. I mean, I, I think we are, as we've seen with a bunch of edtech plays, we've seen a lot of international expansion approaches where oftentimes the money's going into the international arm of a startup. I think we saw mm-hmm. that with the company that was in Brazil a few uh, weeks ago. We also saw this with Duolingo, where they raised a small amount of money from General Atlantic that was designed for, for international expansion. In this case, I've never heard of a company raising for a specific product. I've never yeah. heard that sort of language before. Like you can't kind of invest in one product of the five, but I, I don't think we should ever take it, you know, without more information. My read on Degreed when I saw that amount and, and considering just everyone being remote still was that it's kind of capitalizing on this moment of like the people who didn't lose their jobs in the first startup layoff. Those people, and I mean, I can think for myself, like, not that I was going to get lazy at this job, but I am even more incentivized to work very hard and consistently challenge myself considering how many layoffs were across startups. So in my head, the the, the new cash came at a really smart time. Okay, well, Danny, we can call off the intervention then. Josh is, <laughs> well, is going to be okay, it turns I, out. I'm going to intervene because you're you're wearing a Crunchbase t-shirt. Oh my god! I mean, you're not even representing the brand. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's just, <laughs> to be, to uh, be there, you can't see. He's talking to Natasha, not me. I am wearing a tasteful red t-shirt, obviously. I believe that that's crimson or burgundy, but uh, we're, we're getting into it. <laughs> Since the man wearing buttons, I mean, come on now. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save us from ourselves here and talk about Upgrade. Um, so look, uh, on this show and around the internet, we've talked ad nauseum about neobanks and what are also called challenger banks, these uh, digital first apps that allow people to save money, you know, collect, connect their payroll to it or their paycheck, not payroll, and uh, essentially have a banking experience that is mobile and also very low fee. And p- people like Chime and Acorns is brought into this area now and so forth. Uh, and then there's a different way to go about this. So a lot of those banks launch, you know, checking accounts, debit cards, and then they eventually add like the ability to buy stocks and kind of move up the stack of value. Upgrade did the opposite of that. They started with credit, consumer credits. So they started with personal loans and then credit cards. And then they're going to move into building on neobank futures like checking accounts, that sort of stuff next. And the, the, the flip that they've done allowed them to build a much higher revenue generating business than they would have if they'd done it like everyone else had done and have to reach scale. Like Chime has a bajillion users now, but I don't know where the revenue is. Anyways, Upgrade raised a $40 million Series D at a $1 billion valuation, up from a $500 million valuation in their 2018 Series C. And they just told us a bunch of numbers, which is why I covered it. So here's some more. They're at roughly a $100 million run rate, not ARR. And I clarified that it's month times 12, not quarter times four. So it's certainly kind of a recent number. They are cash flow positive, they say, and they had 60 million in revenue in 2019 and expect 160 million this year, which is nearly, if my math holds up, a tripling. So it's a really fascinating company and we don't hear about fintechs not losing money too often. So this was a surprise. There's a small nuance to this, which is that the CEO used to work at Lending Club and- uh, Well, then just used to work. I mean, he was the founder and CEO. Yeah. He used to work there. Yeah, well, you know, he showed up (laughs) once in a while. He has a name on the wall, (laughs) on the S1 filing. And Danny, do you recall what happened to Lending Club, don't you? Yeah, I mean, so uh, Lending Club was one of these, you know, online peer lending marketplaces uh, went public in December of 2014. And, you know, they, they ended up running into a little bit of trouble with regulators. And I believe it was it the SEC or, or one of the other banking regulators who sort of got in here and, and basically kind of questioned some of the numbers and the kind of controversy around it led to him being ousted and his sort of second act going forward here was upgrade. 
And so, I mean, it's both good to see, you know, someone kind of realizing what happened and, and rebuilding from scratch. I mean, that's that's exactly the way that I read this. So I, I bring it up. I bring up the negative stuff from the past not to be particularly rude because one of the best parts about our job that we do every day at TC is we get to talk to people who are very optimistic and are trying to build awesome new things. And that's a, a never ending battery of, of excitement. But I think that, you know, the lending club stuff is all in the public record. You can go read all the stories and documents and, you know, here's hoping for, for second acts, I suppose, to some degree. Yeah, Alex, I was going to talk about second acts as just this idea of people really publicly screwing up. And I mean, in this case, creating a second pretty hot business, like a cash flow positive fintech unicorn in 2020 is good news, no matter who did it. <laughs> Should we fund people who screw up? But in this case, it, they're good at creating businesses. So yep. it's worth writing about as you did. And it's it's worth giving a shout out to. Uh, as as I said, second chances, I, I, I recall the conversation that I had earlier this week with a black founder. We talked for actually about an hour and he walked me through his entrepreneurial life and his fundraising history and his history working with banks. And it's amazing how some people never have a door open to them and still succeed. And that was the, the guy that I was talking to, who's just a tremendous guy. I'm looking forward to talking to him more. And then there's the CEO of Upgrade who gets kind of a second chance. And you right. know, it's perfectly fine that he gets one. I'm not saying that he shouldn't have one, but I think I'm much more aware now of who doesn't get a first chance? Yeah, no, thanks for saying that. I totally agree. It's like very blatant, especially with these stories or seeing like a lot of the investors that were, you know, ousted to use the word twice on one show. <laughs> investors that were ousted in the Me Too movement part being part of new funds. And it's just like a lot of people get second chances. Will they have returns? Sure. But should we be giving them? I don't know if us three can make yeah, the let's call. Yeah, let's get like 15 to 20 new black women general partners and fund managers, and then we can let in the people who sucked the first time around to have a second yes. chance. That's my yeah. that's my compromise. Okay, let's move on to our, our game of the week, which is what's going on in startup land and how healthy are these things? So the game works as follows. Each one of us is gonna give a 15 to 30 second explanation of our current take on the health of the startup scene. And we we're doing this because there's been a, a deluge of information coming out from surveys, from reports, uh, you know, everyone's talking to VCs and founders trying to figure out what's going on. And we have a bunch of data points that we can talk about, but I'm curious at kind of a macro level, when we're talking to founders lately, what are we hearing? Optimism, pessimism, terror? Tosh, take it away. Yeah, so I'm gonna give a positive take. I think a lot of the refresh of diversity efforts from VC firms come off opportunistic, but from a lot of the black founders and investors I've talked to, they are taking rightful advantage, advantage might be the wrong word, but rightful advantage of the of the newly available cash. So, you know, if and when the market continues to rebound, that is like something that I'm excited is happening, is that more underrepresented founders are in some ways benefiting from it. This time it will be different, kind of. I hope so. And I think it, and Chris Saka, who was a famed investor who retired, who was back. He basically was like, take advantage of of people basically being like, we're screwing up, let's let's try all over again. And I, I just think that, I hope that beyond this moment, people don't think that, you know, see opportunity in it versus thinking that it's just something that they should do out of, out of, social, out of a social justice way of existing. Like it's not social justice to treat people equal. Yeah, it's funny you say that. Uh, Elliot Robinson from um, Bessemer, if I'm recalling tweets from half an hour ago correctly, also said that he feels like things are going to be a little bit different this time and improvements and changes will be made. So here's here's the optimism. But let's bring in uh, Darth Vader. Danny, what you got? 
Darth Vader is very positive. He's, yes! he's the Emperor Palpatine of optimism. So lots of lightning bolts going out there. I think the, um, I actually am uh, really optimistic and I'll, I'll tell you why. Hey, actually was what drove me to uh, optimism this week. So, you know, the idea that you could actually rebuild email sounds simple. You could have done any time in the last, I guess, three decades. I think the first email was sent in the early seventies. But one of the things that's interesting to me is I think as, as, we all kind of adapt to our new lifestyles, our new patterns. You know, people are moving remote. Some people are moving rural. Some people are moving into cities for the first time. Some people are figuring out how to handle their kids or, or uh, you know, handle a situation where they have the parents or grandparents in, in different sort of senior citizen homes. I think what's interesting is all those changes in habits and norms is actually an opportunity for founders to say, hey, how can we change something so fundamental like email? How can we change something like Slack? How do you change video conferencing? How do you change the way we buy things online? Everything is sort of up for debate, right? And if you think about it, the last 10 years, everything was sort of locked in. You know, a lot of the same names you heard a decade ago. Like we're talking about Gmail. Gmail is, I think, an 04 product. 16 it years shows. later, it's still, it's still there. And it, <laughs> it also takes about 16 years to load these days. So It's just you know, bad. It's just bad. So there's this huge opportunity. And I, I, what, what gets me excited is I think a lot of VCs see it as well. And so what I've been hearing is an openness to consider more ambitious ideas than was there before. That people are saying, hey, go do something really fundamental. Use the next year when no one's going to be able to launch anything anyway. Go build interesting products. Go try to change the world. And um, there's a lot more safety net there than I think there was two, three years ago when everyone wanted another featured SaaS vertical, you know, settings page optimization widget, try to make it $100 million in revenue in SaaS. I, I think it's definitely opened up the <laughs> aperture quite a bit. It, it feels like the the time to build memo like went from memo went from like in the clouds to actually happening and i i needed that optimism danny because that is like a a, a classic startup story that i'm happy is not going away yeah but no thanks to the the memo itself right it's no, not like no, people not read that all. post and it the felt, world changed <laughs> it, 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 it that that post felt annoying when it came out and i am glad that it is in some way not completely off i'm 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 not pro the, the memo. let me make it clear no I, you know i like the memo because I, I like to get enthusiastic about things it's one of my sure. one of my flaws it's it's one of my weaknesses i do like to get swept up and in, in, in get excited about things and i'm reading that and the idea of the future was a lot of fun because i'm a science fiction nerd at heart and so that that worked on me um throwing in my two cents before we wrap up uh similarly optimistic i'm surprised we're actually all on the same page here uh but not for the same reasons that you guys are slightly different ones uh, which is that we're seeing um, some fundamentals in certain startup cohorts that I try to keep tabs on improving. B2B SaaS churn, for example, is, is down from where it was. We're seeing layoffs go to essentially nil in the startup land. So a lot of the things that were looking pretty scary in March and April have come back around. I don't know what it means that startups can recover while the economy is still falling apart, but it seems like a lot of the, uh, the stock market and so forth can kind of keep going and be healthy, even though people are out of work. I'm still figuring out what that means intellectually. But we have to wrap it up, guys. We have to stop. So, Tosh, thank you for being here. Danny, as always, a treat. Uh, don't forget to check out the, the TechCrunch list. Go to tc.com. Take a peek at it. Danny's put in yeoman's work on this thing, and it's worth your time. And uh, we're on Twitter now at, at EquityPod. So say hi. All right. Bye. Bye.